From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She voted to remove school resource officers as a board member in Denver. Now Jennifer Bacon is helping shape gun policy as a state lawmaker. I'll speak with her at the Capitol, literally down the road from where a student at East High School shot two educators last week. Bacon doesn't regret her vote to remove SROs, but she does apologize to the East community. Part of that apology is that we have not taken steps as a matter of law sooner. We are also simultaneously having conversations on changing statute right now that perhaps we could have had years ago. Students came to this building after Parkland. Students came to this building after fill in the blank. And we are just now in a place of passing particular laws. The easiest way to make an impact through a transfer of appreciated stocks is to have your broker electronically transfer the stock from your account to ours, which may also come with tax benefits. Learn more on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. She used to sit on the Denver School Board. Now she's in the state legislature. And that puts Democratic State Representative Jennifer Bacon at the intersection of two big conversations in Colorado right now. First, after a shooting at East High School left two administrators wounded, the familiar question of how to keep schools safe. As a DPS board member in 2020, Bacon voted to remove armed school resource officers from campuses. Many are questioning that move. And now as a ranking lawmaker, Bacon is immersed in the debate over gun laws. We spoke at the Capitol Tuesday. Representative, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. At East High School last week, the suspected shooter was under a safety plan that required him to be searched every day for guns. Two deans conducted that search that day. They were shot and wounded. There were no armed officers in the building. I guess first off, why did you, as a school board member at the time, push to remove SROs, school resource officers? Well, the story of removing school resource officers began almost now 20 years ago. The conversation arose after Denver and Denver Public Schools, along with a group of parents and students and national organizations, wanted to investigate zero-tolerance policies. We saw here, particularly after Columbine, that we thought we should add police presence to schools to keep students safe. And after a couple years of that, we saw that police presence in schools increased the number of touch points that young people had with law enforcement and therefore access to creating or having criminal records. And you believe that those were inappropriate touch points, I'm guessing. Yes. The purpose was to keep students safe quite honestly, for mass shootings. And what we saw was that then school-level behavior or things that would have otherwise been referred to any school discipline systems were referred to law enforcement. And so we saw a disproportional number of students of color uh, being ticketed or arrested for behavior that just five years before they would not have been. And that began to outweigh some of the other safety concerns. And over the course of a decade, the disproportionality had not changed. And so you co-signed a resolution to remove school resource officers. I did. What brought me to school board 
in particular was to talk about community voice and impact and what was happening in schools, whether it was from school closure, school assessment, but also to end the school to prison pipeline. And it had been made clear by a lot of my community members, particularly members of communities of color, we want counselors, not cops in schools. You know, you used a word earlier, outweigh, that there came a point where you thought the benefit of school resource officers no longer outweighed the drawbacks. I want to know if you think there's some level of police presence at a school that makes it worth it for the potential deterrent effects. We had questions on the efficacy of the program. There were other incidents of harms in schools that did have SROs. And quite honestly, over the course of the last 25, 30 years, we've seen the number of SROs increase in schools and the number of school shootings increase as well. So we could not necessarily say there was a direct corollary. And um, unfortunately, we had other incidents, not quite one in which uh, staff was harmed, but where students were harmed on campuses where SROs were present. And communities asked us then too, well, aren't you supposed to keep us safe? But what we did know was that we had a mission and a vision at Denver Public Schools to get all of our students' college and career ready. And this practice over the thousands of tickets that we had issued was tangibly getting in the way of that. It is not a small thing to have a ticket, to stand in front of a judge, to be exposed to criminal records and bench warrants for behavior that in other school districts would be detention. Did you look for evidence that having a school resource officer might deter a mass shooting? That's not something you turned a blind eye to necessarily, is it? We, we did not. And as I said before, we had questions on the efficacy of the program. You, you, I think, you did look for that evidence, though. Sure. And what was happening at the time, if you recall, STEM was right before that. There was a shooting mm-hmm. at the STEM school uh, in suburban Denver. We had conversations about Parkland, where there was also an SRO present. There were also armed guards present. And again, part of the larger conversation of gun violence and the fear of guns was breaking down what the presence of law enforcement meant in buildings. That it was expected that students would not necessarily respond to badges and handcuffs. Denver Police Department said guns were part of their uniform. They would not separate them. Students were expected to be their behavior controlled by the presence of a weapon that students said scared them. Um, And so we did ask these questions. We also noted that if people come and intend to do harm, they will. And at best, SROs there would be there to shoot back. And from what we had seen, that also came at a risk of other people being hit, which we actually saw from STEM. And so... The decision, again, for purposes of this conversation was not a convoluted one. It was not a knee-jerk reaction. It was, again, the result of, you know, a decades-long question. Yeah, two decades, you said. Right. I didn't, and I didn't know it that. was student-led as well. You know, we got some criticism that we were making a knee-jerk reaction to the death of George Floyd. But what people didn't understand who may not have experienced the conversation of police brutality over the years is that the death of George Floyd was more of an exclamation point to the end of the sentence that people had been writing for a long time. And it had been made aware that law enforcement may take the life of people without impunity, and that scared a lot of people. And that scared us, too. 
Take me to the day of the East High School shooting when two educators were shot. Did you have a moment of thinking, gosh, what if an SRO had been present? It is not clear, by the way, that a school resource officer would have conducted the sort of search that the deans were doing. So we, we can't assume that that would have been a role taken on by an officer. Uh, there are issues related to search warrants mm -hmm. when law enforcement engages in behavior like that mm -hmm. under, under one of these safety plans. But was there a moment where you thought, did I make the right decision? I had a moment of asking that when we passed the policy, as well as last week. And part of what I processed with a complete honesty was also what if a police officer was there? Would he have left the campus alive? Would other students have been hit as well? All of those things went through my mind. Any regrets then? I don't have regrets on the policy. This young man knew he was gonna be searched by a human metal detector, if you will, and he still brought a weapon. And so it may not be one thing, and the conversation about SROs should not be equated to the tragedies that happened. That is critical. And so do I regret the loss of life and the harm? That is absolutely true. And sometimes these conversations can never be the one answer. We need to do all that we can to prevent, but we need to be sure what we're doing actually works and also does not simultaneously cause deep harm as well. This, to you, is a mm -hmm. conversation mm -hmm. that is not as simple as whether there's an officer in the school, I think I hear you say. Exactly. I'm not entirely sure what the safety plan said. I have not, that has not been shared with me. The alleged shooter's safety plan. Exactly. He'd been expelled from another district, mm -hmm. in part because of his past with firearms. And particular neighborhoods see this differently, have relationships with firearms for different reasons. The issue of youth gun violence is not new to me, nor my neighborhoods, or even across the metro area. We've talked to young people on why they carry them, and the majority of young people say they carry them for the walk home. Chalkbeat, the news site, has reported that a record number of weapons was found on DPS campuses last year, 200 total, including 13 guns, 28 fake guns. 13 guns, 28 fake guns. We have had issues with guns before as well. You know, expulsions did not cease with the SRO program. But for what it's worth, the conversations that we've had with young people outside of schools also reflect uh, more interest in easier access to guns. What this means is, also, young people are bringing the issues they have in their community into schools. However, the purpose of weapons in schools may not exactly be to be using them in schools. I think that's what the point that I'm making, and it's not by any means supposed to make anyone feel better. And it is a very sad one. I think this is why we're all having conversations on gun control. I'll say that he was on probation for conduct in a neighboring district. Um, I wonder if you think about the young man's parents. Absolutely. School districts and teams, our best hopes is to be partners with families. And we don't always get to do that. 
And we are often asked to fill in the blanks when those relationships may be frayed or may put students and other students in harm's way. And so the burdens on school districts these days are much more complicated than they've been in the past, which is why we cannot be responsible for it all. We need support. I want to say that since the East High School shooting, Denver Public Schools has said it will detail officers and additional mental health counselors at high schools throughout the district, at least through the end of the school year. Uh, What do you think of the decision? Is it a mistake? I think the school board, having been there, should make their decisions based off of the information they have and the responsibilities to be responsive to their community. I'm. Is this a pendulum? Does it just keep swinging back and forth? I think until we're at a place where we can actually be equipped and resourced and understand these issues, we will always want to react. That's human nature. And that's okay. What we need to always be mindful of is keeping track of perception and reality. We need to be open-minded that some of the solutions to safety may be broader than one or two actions. Give me an example. Well, we need to find better coordination between law enforcement, city resources, and support for young people outside of school. Unfortunately, and fortunately perhaps, Denver Public Schools has often been associated with the full care of children. And our purpose is to educate. And so we need to be working with Denver Health, the city and county. We need to support our kids in having anything from access to after-school resources, mental health, all of those things to support students in making different decisions that guns can solve their problems. We need to talk about how do we keep guns out of the hands of children? How do we keep guns out of the hands of people who have ideations of self-harm and community harm? All of those things are part of this conversation. And all of those things I heard from the East community as well. And I want to thank them. I want to apologize for the circumstances and that they felt the need to come directly to this building, the Capitol. But I want to thank them for also thinking deeply about the issues. What, what are you apologizing for when you say you had to come here to the Capitol? There were several marches, actually, mm-hmm. from east mm-hmm. to the state Capitol. One was after uh, the shooting death of a young man outside the school, and then again after the shooting of the administrators. Part of that apology is that we have not taken steps as a matter of law sooner we are also simultaneously having conversations on changing statute right now that perhaps we could have had years ago. Students came to this building after Parkland. Students came to this building after fill in the blank. And we are just now in a place of passing particular laws. We just did safe storage last year instead of five years ago. After the young woman from Florida flew here and bought a gun and shut down half of Colorado. Oh, gosh, I remember. We are still having those conversations. One loses track of the incidents. Mm-hmm. I remember that. And how do, it didn't matter who was in the building to be able to defend against a long gun and a perch. So we have been having these conversations for a long time. Well, let's segue to your current role as a state representative, as a leader in the House for the Democratic Party. 
There are any number, indeed, of gun bills that are going through the legislature right now, expanding, for instance, the red flag gun law, those extreme risk protection orders. We've seen that they have been used many times in some places and almost never in others. Mm -hmm. Uh, I understand you'd like to have a hotline that goes along with them. You know, part of the conversation around the hotline actually came to us as a result of some research that CPR completed in saying that many people did not know what an ERPO was, let alone how to access it. And part of the hotline concept was just to be an accessible way to get information. Um, It wasn't necessarily intended to be a crisis response hotline. But since within the bill that we proposed, we've expanded who has access to it, we want people to know in the state that there is a resource to help them navigate how to access one and if they qualify to access one. Because these requests that temporarily remove firearms from people who may be a threat to themselves or others, they can be placed by law enforcement, but they can also be placed by the citizenry. Yes. Uh, And so presumably this is about educating everyday people about the system. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's a limited citizenry. Um, You know, it's not your neighbor can just suspect and go get a protective order. And there's due process involved. Absolutely. It is people who have deeper and relationships with people where they spend a lot of time to understand mindset, who are around long enough to receive and see if any threats are made. And, you know, the petition still needs to be reviewed by a judge. And weapons are not taken permanently, but at least through the crisis or for a period of time. I'd like to talk about ghost guns. My understanding is that any, any minute now, any day now, a bill will drop to ban them in Colorado. It appears that ghost guns are involved in the East High School shooting, as well in the Club Q shooting in Colorado Springs. Do you want to speak briefly to what this bill would do precisely? I actually do not have the details. It has not been introduced, and so we have not seen all the language. Do you want to ban ghost guns? I think we. there are a lot of questions about banning weapons, and I think this is one of them. You know, the issue with ghost guns really is talking about untraceable weapons. Weapons well, without a serial exactly. number that might have been pieced together from Different parts, parts and bought pieces. online. Um, there have been other discussions about how to hold people accountable for parts and pieces. We just had another bill about that as well in holding manufacturers liable in the event they create these products to uh, alter weapons or to create illegal weapons that increase the harm. But the ghost gun conversation is a critical conversation by way of just the sheer number of weapons that are in this country and that people are accessing. And so we need to take steps to limit those as well. All right. There is also a proposal to increase the minimum age for gun purchases in Colorado to 21, up from 18. Mm -hmm. But I'll note that the alleged shooter at East was 17 and still had a gun. Mm -hmm. Uh, We hear of so many other shootings involving teens. I want to be very clear this is beyond East. Why do you think the age should be changed? You can vote at 18. Why shouldn't you be able to have a gun at 18? And a lot of this is about, you know, in the gun rights advocacy space, they will talk about a weapon as a tool. And this product, this tool, this weapon is 
incredibly efficient at its purpose. And where it meets young people in their ability to process, that is the concern about access to weaponry. When you say process, you mean like their brains? The frontal lobe, the thinking, whether it is to harm themselves or others. Unfortunately, the completion rates of uh, suicide as well as community harms with weapons is much higher than it would be with any other tool. And so part of the conversation is about, can young people handle it? right, and process their purpose and need. We'll also point out we are having this conversation. Again, the young woman from Florida who bought a gun was 18. Um, And so this, again, is part of a suite of bills to recognize that the number of young people who are shooters, particularly for school shootings, are in this age bracket. And at the very least, they shouldn't have a legal means of buying these weapons in concert with other things that we're talking about, background checks, uh, locks, all of those things, even to some extent part of the gun violence conversation is even include training. Like all of these conversations are part of the discussion, but this is part of the trajectory in which we're moving and a step we could take this session. Representative, two realities beyond Colorado. One is the more conservative Supreme Court has been very deferential to the Second Amendment so far. Two, you pass a state law and someone goes into any of our bordering states, you know, be it Nebraska, Kansas, Utah, Wyoming, Oklahoma, and they get their hands on what they can't get their hands on in Colorado. Do those two realities make the legislature's work a fool's errand? Not a fool's errand. It may make it difficult. There are pieces of law that have not been touched that even our Supreme Court has said uh, has withstood the quote-unquote test of time, one of which is time, place, and manner in which you can carry weapons. We passed a law last session, for example, uh, that you cannot open carry in places where people vote. I think when it comes to going to surrounding states, there are other federal laws about (laughs) transporting weapons to lean on, but I would propose that these may also be our proverbial speed bumps. If we want people to go slower, you have to take tangible steps. And if that means it saves some time and therefore saves lives, then it's worth doing. How much is the Supreme Court on your mind as you're crafting language in the business of, you know, does this say shall or will, Mm -hmm. you know, the kind of brass tacks of lawmaking? It's on all of our minds, and it's on all of the circuit court's mind as well. We saw out of Florida in that circuit a 21-year-old band be upheld. So it's not just here in Colorado. I think the uh, legal community is trying to understand, navigate, as well as test theories. But if we have some data to suggest certain actions, we'll save lives, we'll try it. It is worth it. And we'll also put our best legal minds on it as well. You represent Denver County, Mm -hmm. but I'm thinking of people in Weld County. Mm -hmm. You've hinted at the notion of what are the cultural reasons people might have firearms. Uh, You invoked the walk home for kids who don't feel safe in a city as they leave school. But then you think of a place like Weld County or counties on the Western Slope where law enforcement may be quite a drive away. The response time isn't going to be the same as it would be in a city where hunting culture is much stronger 
And these are realities for Coloradans as well. How do you keep those folks in mind as you do this kind of legislating? You know, it is important to us to hear from our colleagues and listen to our colleagues, you know, even if they say that we don't. Um, Yeah, the Republicans in the kind of marathon mm -hmm. gun session that went over the weekend uh, really thought that the Democrats curtailed the debate by using a particular rule. They didn't feel heard. And I would say differently, the conversations were had. They were never limited to five minutes. We're talking about hours over the course of committees on the floor. In addition to listening, we also want to be able to work with our colleagues to understand those nuances, to figure out if we can make some changes to our bills. But again, both parties have to be open and willing to do that. It's one thing to you know say you're not heard, and it's another to not come to the table to share ideas. And we want to encourage our colleagues from across the aisle doing that too, that you know, all demands have to be negotiated, even ours. I will say that I believe, at least as a sponsor of one of them, I believe that we took into account some of the things that we heard. For example, we gave the highest level of civil procedure and civil court kind of operations, the highest level of deference to ERPOs. It requires clear and convincing evidence of substantial risk. It is not just, I think you have a gun and I don't like you. And in some ways, it might actually be easier to remand someone's physical person than it is to take their weapon, given the way that some of the language is written. And that, that actually habeas corpus is somehow weaker than the... <laughs> or if someone is in a mental health crisis. You know, law enforcement can believe that with probable cause and put you in holding for three days without going to a judge. And a lot of this is still up to local discretion. It's still up to local district attorneys and judges to make these decisions. So the state, you know, some evildoer in Denver is not making these decisions in each of these communities. And quite honestly, extreme risk protection orders, it's not unique to Colorado. 19 states have them. We have seen data in polling that says people believe that those who have access to firearms should use them responsibly. People believe that those who have access to firearms should be able to handle them And while you do have a right to possess a firearm, you do not have a right to use it and harm people. And so that is what we were trying to balance. And we do think that most people, and I would even say across ideological parties, believe that dangerous people shouldn't have access to weapons. I think that when it comes to this question of gun violence across the country, more people than not are ready to think deeply and to do the hard work in figuring it out. If every three days we have a school shooting, regardless of if an SRO is in the building or not, regardless if there are metal detectors, regardless if someone is six years old, 14, 15, or 28, everybody is ready to have conversations and they need to be deep. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely, thank you for having me today. Assistant House Majority Leader Jennifer Bacon, the Denver Democrat, had a long career in education before joining the legislature. Our interview was recorded Tuesday in her office at the state capitol. Special thanks to producer Michelle P. Fulcher and audio engineer Pete Kramer.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. How you understand a story can really depend on who is telling it. CPR News and Denver 7 have teamed up to bring you stories of people in underserved communities on Real Talk. I'm Nathan Heffel. And I'm Micah Smith. Get unique, in-depth perspectives from people not often heard on the news. Real people, real voices, real talk. Fridays at 3.30 and Mondays at 6.30 here on CPR News and KRCC. Japan may be an island, but when it comes to cuisine, it's no island. Swapping traditions with China, Europe, and yes, the United States. Denver journalist Gil Asakawa has written the book Tabimasho Let's Eat, a tasty history of Japanese food in America. He reflects on the rise of sushi here, opens our eyes to Japanese-American salsa, and explores how World War II incarceration shaped cuisine. We spoke in November. Gil, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be back. Uh, You were born in Japan, raised in the United States. Your mother was a major influence on your palate, and she cooked both Japanese and American food. But I figure we should start with her teriyaki sauce, which (laughs) you invoke in the opening pages. What stands out about it to you? Uh, My mom, like I think a lot of ethnic mothers... She didn't really measure things. <laughs> she would just <laughs> pour some, you know, sake into a bowl and then pour some shoyu or soy sauce into a bowl and then scoop out some sugar. And I, I don't really remember her ever measuring things. That's kind of what I remember. And then when I went to college, I asked her for some recipes. And, of course, she didn't write anything down. <laughs> and so she just told me, well, I just use, you know, sake, soy sauce, and sugar and... And and that's it. And when I got to college, this is college, so, you know, I'm not going to go out and buy sake. I went and bought beer. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, and so I used beer for the longest time in my homemade teriyaki sauce. How did that turn out? It's pretty good. You know, I, I'm, of course, maybe it wasn't very good. I'm not an alcohol drinker, so I wouldn't know if, mm. if you could even taste it. But I used beer. And I think that's the one thing about probably all foods, but certainly Japanese food, that they are very adaptable. You know, all the dishes are, you don't have to be exact. You Mm. can be like my mom and go with gut. It's interesting because teriyaki sauce is something that in my home you would buy, not make. (laughs) Right. uh, Because, well, it's a nice shortcut. Do you always make your own teriyaki sauce if you're eating it at home? Uh yes, Uh but you know what? We don't eat like teriyaki steak or teriyaki chicken. There is, Japanese Americans eat a lot of teriyaki chicken at things like the Cherry Blossom Festival. They'll go through like, you know, 3,000 chickens (laughs) in a weekend. Uh, And they, they marinate it and then they grill it and it's wonderful. In Japan, teriyaki chicken is not a thing. Teriyaki anything is not a thing. Teriyaki is just a way of flavoring foods. So it's like, it would be like an American saying, yeah, this is salted steak. (laughs) It's fascinating to me that the most popular dish in Japan is actually a curry, you write. Yes. um, uh, There was some statistic, and I forget the exact number, but it was something like, you know, 75% of Japanese families have curry at least once a week. But it's it's not like 
because I grew up with Japanese curry. It's not like Indian curry uh-huh. or Thai curry. It's gloppy, stewy, has potatoes and carrots and onions and beef, uh, very specific ingredients. But it's, it's an adaptation, which is one thing I found in writing this book is that I learned that a lot of the things that I think of as Japanese food mm-hmm. are adaptations of food from other countries. So they appropriated culture. Um, in, in the case of curry, it wasn't from India. They appropriated it from the British who stole it from India. Oh, I see. So <laughs> by way of... By way of England, by yeah. By way of England. And you also talk a lot about the interchange, interplay between Japan and China. So mm-hmm. many of the things that we might associate with Japanese cuisine actually originated in China. Yeah, down to, you know, the very basics like tea. Mm-hmm. You know, green tea is uh, thought of as such a, a Japanese standard. But tea and, and a lot of things come from China, soy sauce. Um, soybeans, a lot of the things that are standard issue foods in Japan had their origins in China, but then they were adapted and changed and, uh, you know, to suit the Japanese palate. And then they changed again to suit the Japanese American and the American <laughs> That's palate, right. as you write in this book. Your wife, Erin, has also helped shape your palate. Will you tell us about a dish her family makes, kakimochi? Oh, yes. Kakimochi is a... This is surprising to me because of one particular ingredient. I'll let you say it. That's a, it's actually a, like a teriyaki chip, corn chip. I, and, and I have the recipe in my first book, Being Japanese American. I think there's a recipe for it in here. But it's, it's a chip that's sweet and salty and it has soy sauce and butter. And, uh, but its main ingredient is... Tostitos. Tostitos. (laughs) But not the regular corn chips, the round ones. There's a mini size. Uh And that's what I use for uh, kakimochi. (laughs) This idea of fusion ingredients, right? True Japanese-American food is also exemplified in a type of salsa. Would you describe karami for us? Yeah, karami is... um, it's something that I was introduced to, what, about a decade or 12, 15 years ago. A friend of mine who lives in Boulder had started a company um, to mass produce karami, which is kind of a Japanese-American variation from Pueblo, Colorado. Amazing. And the, uh, the fam- actually the family of a former mayor of Pueblo um, was making this, and it's a side dish in Japan to have like pickled vegetables and various things and, and you serve it with rice or on top of rice or, or next to your protein. And uh, this wakame is one, one name for it, uh, was usually made with seaweed, wakame seaweed uh, from the ocean and Japanese Americans who were farmers or railroad workers in Pueblo found, huh, there's no seaweed. <laughs> <laughs> but they in found Southern something. Colorado. Yeah, they found something that had a very similar mouthfeel in terms of like sliminess and texture. Uh, and it was Pueblo chiles, green chilies. And, um, and so they started using that. And it's really good. It's tasty. It has kind of a... 
um, the flavor of a Japanese condiment with, you know, soy sauce and sugar. But it has a little kick because of the green chilies. And so you have a friend who makes this now. I think Mm -hmm. it's available in jars at like Pacific Mercantile in Denver, which is in Sakura Square. Yes. Yeah. And so the family is still making it. The the guy who was making it with my friend in Boulder, uh, he passed away, unfortunately, last year. I'm sorry uh, to hear that. But the family seems to be continuing to make it. Karami. You have invoked uh, Gil Asakawa, and if you're just joining us, uh, he's my guest, the author of Tabimasho, Let's Eat, A Tasty History of Japanese Food in America. You have invoked uh, rice and soy sauce. And I was surprised to read in the book that in Japan, it's not good form to pour soy sauce over your plain rice, which is so true in the United States, you know? Um, Yeah, my mom used to yell at me when I did that. Uh, it it was it would be like rude. It would be like saying this rice is terrible. <gasps> you know, I need to add something to it. But you know, when you're a kid, I I used to put all sorts of things on all sorts of food. I I put uh, MSG Ajinomoto on Cheerios once. <laughs> I never made that mistake again. <laughs> you also posted to social media recently that you put gravy. On rice. Yes. And then I just got a craving for gravy on rice. I thought, what a brilliant idea. There's actually a couple of ways that that's kind of come into the culinary vocabulary. There's a Hawaiian dish called lokomoko, which is rice covered with uh, one or two beef patties, hamburger patties, and then topped with gravy and then an egg. Uh, uh, you know, you put an egg on anything, a fried and you, egg, and I'm there. Yeah, and uh, it's called loco moco, and uh, you can usually get the gravy on the side. It's usually brown gravy, but I've also had it with the white gravy that comes with like chicken fried steak, <laughs> and, and chicken fried steak is great on rice. Gravy on rice. <laughs> uh, as I said, you moved from Japan to the United States as a kid. Uh, this was in the 1960s when there wasn't much Japanese food here. Uh, Now you write, Japanese restaurants are in every city and sushi's in supermarkets across the U.S., uh, which made me want to play a movie clip that you mention in (laughs) the book. It's from 1985's The Breakfast Club. What's that? Sushi. Sushi? (laughs) Rice, uh, raw fish, and seaweed. You won't accept a guy's tongue in your mouth and you're going to eat that? Can I eat? I don't know. Give it a try. Was that pivotal? Do you think that scene? I don't know if it was pivotal. Like, you know, the the teenagers or the young adult, that, which I was in 1985. I was working as a music writer at Westward at the time. Um I don't know that that, that scene would have changed people's minds uh-huh. or or kind of stirred any curiosity but there was definitely a movement and and like the hollywood elite so like in 1988 um michael j fox was on the cover of esquire magazine with a plate of sushi And, and so there was definitely this awareness growing this hipness factor uh you know what we would today call influencers were catching on to sushi. And I love that scene because it shows that in 1985, sushi was still 
pretty much a weird thing for mainstream America. Yeah, the notion of raw fish. <laughs> I, I know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is what people used to tease me when I moved to the U.S. when I was in third grade. And, you know, people would tease me, you eat that raw fish stuff, huh? Ooh, yuck. And I'm, I'm sure the grandkids of those kids that teased me back then, their grandkids are eating sushi a couple, three times a week from, you know, the supermarket. And it's not very good sushi, but it'll do in a pinch. You know, I also think that the rise of seaweed mm-hmm. as an edible food in the United States must follow a similar trajectory. Because, of course, sushi is often wrapped in seaweed. I remember when it became more in vogue to have dried seaweed, just a little strip of dried seaweed. Do you remember those? Yeah, as a snack. Yeah, and some kids in my school, I remember growing up, uh, their parents would pop those into their lunches, you know. Yeah, the seaweed, I didn't actually focus, I should. Maybe in the the sequel, (laughs) I'll have a chapter on seaweed. Seaweed is everywhere in Japan in all sorts of different ways. Uh, regional seaweed. And seaweed definitely is is part of that. Seaweed was part of the movement for health food yeah. that started in the late 60s, early 70s. But when US. you say regional sea, uh, seaweed, in other words, it, there's like terroir yeah. for seaweed. There's, there's, you know, in Okinawa, there's a form of seaweed called mozuku, which is kind of like, looks like little hairy balls of mush. Huh. Uh, but it's really good. And, my and that's mo- going to be different from another yeah, kind you, of... Yeah, you can't get too- that in mainland Japan. My mom is from northern island of Hokkaido on the easternmost tip, and she always swore that the, that the uh, seaweed from her hometown of Nemuro is the best in Japan. Well, so, um, but yeah, it was part of that health food kick. The original Japanese sushi, like way, way back, would not be recognizable to no. people today. No, because it was fish that was fermented in like spoiled rice for like two years and i think i i've never had it there's uh-huh. a there's a lake biwa near kyoto where uh you can it's there's a town that still serves and makes it and serves it and i want to go there sometime and try it but i assume it to be kind of pretty stinky Salty, like gefilte <laughs> fish only on steroids, you know. Oh, it's funny you invoke gefilte fish, <laughs> which is part of my upbringing, but I was thinking lutefisk. Too, oh, lutefisk, you know? yeah. yeah. I- I'd like to talk about how the imprisonment of Japanese Americans during World War II shaped foodways. Um, Colorado, of course, was the site of Camp Amachi. Um, perhaps, Gil, we can focus on soy sauce that was made in the camps. Mm-hmm. It was some of the camps had the wherewithal and the materials where they could make soy sauce. But instead of, you know, real soy sauce, which would be aged for a long time, years, Uh you know, in in these huge caskets, uh, they were made quickly. The name of the process escapes me, but it was basically soy sauce light. And it's what was sold as soy sauce by La Choy and, you know, what's the other, uh, you know, the other... Like Kikoman. Uh, no, Kikoman makes real soy sauce from Japan. Oh, okay. Although they make it here in the U.S. now. But there were a couple of Chinese food package uh, companies that were formed in the 20s and 30s and that were, they actually helped popularize Chinese food 
even though they weren't particularly <laughs> the, uh, uh, authentic, quote-unquote. They were uh, started by a Caucasian man who just saw an opportunity. Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, there's a whole history of, of uh, Chinese food that way. You know, Gino's Pizza Rolls? Yeah. That was created by the Jewish man who started Gino's Pizza uh, and w- was, uh, was selling, I think it was La Choy, uh, you know, Chinese food, packaged Chinese food. And he had this great idea to put, let's put pizza stuff inside an egg roll wrapper. <laughs> there you have it. And so this was a, a fast soy sauce that was yeah. made in, in the camps. In the camps. Yeah. And so it it, um, it helped kind of take the edge off uh, camp food and make it more authentic. And And, you know, camp food was something that was uh, important and it, it helped it, uh, change the, the things that Japanese Americans ate, you know, and uh, got sick of eating certain things that were fed all the time, uh, like cottage cheese. Mm. And, and then uh, also they, they got to celebrate New Year's every year with uh, as much traditional, authentic, quote unquote, uh, Japanese food as possible for the New Year's. Music, not just food, makes it into your book, (laughs) specifically this 1963 tune, which hit number one on the American Billboard charts. Yes. (laughs) Kyu Sakamoto is known as the Elvis of Japan. Yes. But it's the title of this song, which you're dancing to, Gil Asakawa, <laughs> author of Tabemasho, Let's Eat. Um, the title of the song that stands out for our purposes today. Yes, it's, uh, it's called Sukiyaki to everybody in the West. But in Japan, it was called Ue o Muite Aruko, which means I look up as I walk, and that's to prevent my tears from spilling over. Uh, And it sounds like a really sad song for a lost love. So I really think they should have called it sayonara, which was a pretty common Japanese word that people knew in the West. But they called it sukiyaki because the British producer who heard the song in Japan wanted to release an instrumental version in the UK. And he called it sukiyaki because he had just had sukiyaki for the first time and he <laughs> loved it. This was in the late 1950s. And, and so um, that's how it came to be called sukiyaki. Sukiyaki was one of the three foods of Japan that Americans or Westerners were aware of in the years after World War II. So it was uh, uh, sukiyaki, teriyaki, and tempura. And tempura. Yeah. Oh. And, and so sukiyaki is like... You know, people heard the word sukiyaki and they knew right away, oh, this is going to be something Japanese. And maybe delicious for the ears, at least. <laughs> yeah. You know, we could keep talking uh, about the invention of mochi ice cream, uh, but I'm just going to leave it for people to read the book. Gil, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's been fun. Gil Asakawa of Denver has written Tabimasho Let's Eat, a tasty history of Japanese food in America. We first spoke in November. Ha
の日ひとりぼっちの夜 And that is Colorado Matters for today with thanks to our team Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield, and Watashino Namaewa Ryan Desu. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Shia was s a i